We're continuing with Revelation. If you, Revelation 11, found on page 1240 in the Pew Bible. This is the Word of God. Revelation chapter 11, reading from verse 1. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the worshippers there. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts, because these two prophets have tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to the heaven in a cloud, while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets. And your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. 
And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Amen. And we thank God for his word. Well, if you have a a Bible close to you, let's turn to Revelation 11, uh, page 1241, if, if you've got a pew Bible. I wonder, do you think a lot about the church? Uh, Not particularly Hill Street I'm thinking of here, but the people of God scattered all across the world. Some meeting today in in vast buildings. You hear stories of Presbyterian churches in South Korea where there are several services, each with several thousand people. One great crowd going out as another is coming in. Maybe a small gathering of, of believers who meet in the open uh, on the edge of a village in Africa. Some of you have been to Malawi and, and you will remember some of the scenes that you've seen there. Maybe a pastor who's ridden a bicycle for miles to get there and will be visiting several other little gatherings of believers. Maybe just one or two Arab believers in, in a closed country listening to a, a radio program or something on a, on a phone together, not daring to sing. Or, or maybe we think this week about the church in Lurg and other believers meeting in other places, but, but part of the people of God. Do you think much about the church, the people of God scattered around the world? And of course, then the church down through the ages as well, those who have gone on before us. You know, we sometimes sing We bear the torch that flaming fell from the hands of those who gave their lives proclaiming that Jesus died and rose. We're part of a story, aren't we? There have been those who have come and brought the gospel to us and now we have the responsibility to take it to others. So they're part of the church triumphant in glory now. Do you think about the church? The church might not be the center of our thinking. I'm sure we don't think about it half as often as we ought to. But it is very much on the, the mind and the heart of God. Ephesians 1.22, speaking of Christ, it says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. It's, it's a remarkable verse, isn't it? I realize that in the light of that, I don't think about the church half enough. I remember the first time I started to think of the church as, as something slightly more than the building that I attended was whenever I, I, I was a student in, in college and, and Sinclair Ferguson came and told the story of, of being in Glasgow. He was a minister in Glasgow at that stage. He used to walk into his, his work in the middle of Glasgow and, and he, he habitually walked past a great old building that was quite disheveled and, and dirty and so on and and uh, didn't take an awful lot of notice of it. And then one time he noticed that, that it had been covered in scaffolding and that sort of netting had gone up all around it. You couldn't see it. And it remained that way for a year or maybe more. And, and every day he, he walked past it. Everybody walked past it. Sort of forgot it was there. It was sort of uh, out of sight and out of mind. 
And then one day he came round the corner and the shuttering had all been taken down. The scaffolding had gone and, and it was a sunny day in Glasgow, which is rare. And, and uh, the, the, the sun was, was beaming on this building and uh, it had been cleaned and restored. It was absolutely magnificent. And everybody was stopping and looking and, and seeing how wonderful it was. And, and he told the story and then said, you know, this is what the church is like. Here today we are just covered in scaffolding and netting, as it were. We seem so inconsequential to the world. The world walks past, but God's at work. And one day the scaffolding will come down and the creation will gasp at what God has been doing behind the scenes as he builds his church. We, we should think more about the church. And that's what we're thinking about tonight as we're looking at this chapter of Revelation. It's all about the church. It is a complicated chapter in what is a complicated book. So this is a particularly challenging chapter. There are lots of good commentators who take different views about some of the elements of this chapter. But even if there are some details that we're not super clear on, I hope that the general thrust of what God is saying here will be clear for us and really encouraging for us. This is, I I think, about what is happening, will happen, and will eventually happen to the church. And whenever we think about the church, of course, we're thinking about us. If we're believers here, this is what will happen to God's people. We're working our way through one of these cycles of sevens. You remember that Revelation is built around these cycles of seven. You've got the seven churches, and then uh, we've got the seven seals, and the seven seals then give way to seven trumpets, and the seven trumpets are sort of an action replay of what happens with the seven seals. They're structured in the same sort of way. They're telling the same sort of story, really, from the, the leaving of Jesus after the ascension to his return again. They're telling that story from slightly different angles. And tonight, we're at the end of the sort of sixth trumpet. That was sounded back in chapter 9, verse 13. And then we're going to look at the end of the sixth trumpet and into the seventh trumpet. Three headings that we're going to use just to navigate uh, through this. Uh, the church is protected and pressured. don't think we've got them up, but the church is protected and pressured. Um, and the church is devastated. We'll have to modify that a little bit as we get through it. And then the church is triumphant. So so here's sort of where we are now, what's coming, and where we're going to end up. That's sort of how we're, we're going to work our way through this passage. So the church, first of all, is protected and pressured. Chapter begins with John being given a measuring rod, a measuring, a, something like a measuring tape. It was a, 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 like a meter stick almost. And being told to go and, and to measure the temple of God and the altar and count its worshippers. And the point of John measuring the temple and, and the worshippers and so on is that, that God's going to protect what he measures. Remember in the earlier part of the book, we saw that God's people were sealed. They were marked with his mark. It's the same idea. God knows those who are his, and he will protect them, and nothing will be able to separate them from the love of Christ, no matter how difficult things get. We know that for so many of the early readers of Revelation, things were incredibly difficult. Uh, God will protect them. Nothing will be able to separate them from his love. This is the, the outworking of 
God's promise that he who began a good work in them will carry it on to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. All of these promises, you see, are being worked out in this vision. And the theme of protection carries on through this chapter. Verse 3 tells us about two witnesses, lots of different views of this, but I think it's another reference to the church as a whole. It's drawing on Moses and Elijah. You see these two witnesses have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain. Remember, Elijah prayed and it did not rain. And then you see that there are rivers turning to blood and plagues falling. And they they happened, of course, under Moses' leadership at the Exodus. And you remember, these were the two men who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And there they sort of represented the, the, uh, Moses, the archetypal lawgiver, and, and Elijah, one of the classic prophets. So there's the, the Old Testament witness standing alongside Jesus Christ. And so that they're representing the, the church or, or the witness of the church. And you can see, therefore, how, how Revelation just draws all of these biblical pictures into its imagery and its language. And that image then changes in verse 4 to two olive trees and two lampstands. Lampstands we saw at the beginning of the book were symbols of the church or the churches. And the fact that there are two is maybe to do with the fact that there are uh, two uh, witnesses required for a, a testimony in a court in those days. And uh, maybe also because in the stories of the seven churches, there were only two of the churches about which nothing negative was said. There were two very faithful churches in those seven. The olive trees are a reference back to a prophecy in Zechariah where he sees a lampstand and then two olive trees. And in Zechariah, they represented Zerubbabel, who was a, a royal figure, Joshua, who was a priest. And so now in the church's witness, we're getting these images of, of royalty and priesthood. So the church has got a prophetic ministry, and it's, it's, uh, the, the prophet, priest, and king images are all being drawn in here as well. You see that the witness of the church is really powerful. The church is, is uh, wearing sackcloth. Um, it, it's, in other words, it's a message of repentance and the church are made up of those who have repented. Church is wearing sackcloth and its witness is powerful. Indeed, the church is powerful because of God's hand upon it. You see in verse five, it says, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. That's something we've got to remember, isn't it? Even in the midst of this challenging world, that God deals with the enemies of the church. He contends with them. Runs right through the Bible, through Revelation as well. God deals with the church's enemies and he also at the same time protects the church itself. So how are you doing tonight as a Christian? Do you feel that you're triumphing? Conquering all before you? Well, I would imagine not I read something this week that reminded me of something. It said, if you're tempted to feel good about your Christian performance, just think for a moment about your prayer life. Well, I think we do. We, we find ourselves sort of rather brought down to earth, don't we? We find ourselves so often struggling, not being the people that we want to be, never mind the people we ought to be. And then the question arises, well, if, if we're really struggling so much, how is it that we're still here? How is it that, that, that 
Thus far, we've kept going as Christians. Oh, we, we feel we're only just keeping going, maybe some of us, but, but how is it that, that we've kept going this far? Well, part of the answer of that is that God is keeping us. God is keeping us going. First Peter, one Peter, Peter in his letter, first letter, chapter one, verse five, speaks of Christians. He says that through faith, they are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You, you, if you're a Christian, you're shielded by God's power. God protects his people. Don't you know that? So the temple is, is measured. The people are counted. God protects his church. But, but it's not only protected, it's also pressured. It's, it's under pressure. You notice that the outer court is not to be measured and the holy city will be trampled on by the Gentiles for a time. Now, there are lots of ways that people have understood this. Some people have suggested that these outer courts represents the Jews or, or nominal Christians. But, but in Revelation, the holy city seems to represent God's people. So here, it seems, is another picture of the church. And here they're getting trampled on by the enemies of God. They're they're persecuted, in other words. And you you want to say, well, hang on now. You've just talked for two or three minutes there about about the church being protected, and now the church is is pressured and persecuted. Well, 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 which is it? And we know, don't we? It's, it's, It's both. At one and the same time, the church is, is terribly pressured, but wonderfully protected. That's why Paul's able to say in 2 Corinthians 4, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. That's why Pastor Tin was able to come here last week and, and tell of situations that, humanly speaking, we would just imagine would crush someone entirely. And yet even in the midst of incarceration in a Vietnamese prison, he finds that he's wonderfully protected. You see, you see both of these truths are here. And you see, this is the normal Christian experience. It's the story of the church preserved and persecuted, protected and pressured. So, so if you're here tonight and you, you feel, oh, following Jesus is really, really tough. It just, it just seems as if we're, we're so much on the fringes of the culture, not, not just tough as an individual, but tough together. You know, we're, we're pushed to the the margins of the culture, and we, we go into offices and so on tomorrow and, and schools, and, and, and you, you just know that some of those who are, are quite good friends, they would just love to see you give up on your Christian faith. They'd love to see you fall. And, and you, you look at the media, and, and you realize that people who believe the sorts of things that we believe are barely tolerated now. And then you think, it's really hard, but, but I know the Lord will keep me. And so I, I, I'm not going to, to throw in the towel or give up because, 
He has his hand on me. And you see, if, if you feel like that, that it's tough, but you're protected. It's just the truths of these words working out in your life. Praise the Lord for that. Persecuted, protected, pressured. Well, this passage moves on. What we've described there, I think, is what's happening to the church now. But the passage tells us then about something that is coming. Look at verse 7. Now, when they have finished their testimony, this is the the, the two witnesses, so the, the church, the, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So we're talking about the church here, it seems. And it looks like this is telling us that near the end, before Christ comes back, there will be a particular time of trial for the church. It's a short time. Verse 11 tells us it's three and a half days. And verse 9 tells us it's three and a half days. It's a a short period. It's, It's figurative language for a short period. But before Christ comes back, there'll be a particular difficult time for the church when Satan, the beast from the abyss of verse 7, will be allowed to have more freedom to damage the church than he does at present. The picture here is of the two witnesses killed, their bodies lying in the streets of the great city. I think that's just a reference to the world in general. Their bodies are treated with contempt. They're not allowed a burial. No one would give them that honor. So, so it looks as if there will come a time when, to all intents and purposes, it will look as if the church has been wiped out. I'm not sure what that means exactly. It doesn't mean that there's perhaps no visible organized expression of the church on the earth, just a handful of secret believers driven underground not just in some places, but in all places. And, and, and what happens when, when that happens? Do, do the, the people of the, the earth, those in rebellion against God, do, they, do they, they miss the church? Do they say, oh, do you know, it's a real shame. We used to love, love those Christians. No, 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 they, they celebrate. They turn the devastation of the church into an excuse for a party, a public holiday. Hallmark, bring out cards, happy devastation of the church day. And this is, it seems, what's coming. Paul describes this, I think, in the same sort of way as the coming of the man of lawlessness in Thessalonians. Jesus hints at it in Matthew 24. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. So so we've got to know this, that that Satan loathes the church. He, He loathes Christ, but he sort of can't get at Christ. And so he loathes Christ's people. The church will be devastated. 50 years ago, this would have been harder for some of us to imagine, I think, than it is now. 
But it seems a little bit more believable. I, I, I've lived through the time when the church has moved from the position generally within society of being respected to being considered sort of irrelevant, now to be considered harmful. You read some of the public comments that go up on Facebook or Twitter about Christians who take a stand. There's a, a deep antagonism there, isn't there? Uh, that's, that's not just explainable by a simple difference of opinion. It, 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 there's an, almost an evil energy to it, isn't there? Uh, and let's just understand why this is. Why is it the people celebrate in verse 10? You see, because these two prophets, that's the church, these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. By the church's very presence, certainly by her proclamation, people are reminded of something they deeply do not want to face up to, and that is their accountability to God and their rebellion against him. So when you are in the office tomorrow or in the classroom tomorrow, well, you'll not be in the classroom tomorrow, but or wherever you find yourself, and, and if you're known as a Christian, and, and hopefully you are, if you're, if you're known as a Christian, you, you will know that there are, there's something in others who, who will see you, and, and this is what will happen in their hearts in, in a way that, that maybe they don't even see about themselves, but they will see you, and they will say, I know I ought to bow before his king or her king, but I won't. And they're tormented. You remind them. You can't help it. You remind them of their disconnect with the Creator. You remind them of their rebellion against the Lord. So don't be surprised whenever you see real antagonism against the church and against God's people. Church will be devastated. We may not live to see this. It may be way, way, way down the road. Or we might be at the beginning of it now. We don't know. Either way, our, our response is to be the same, isn't it? As Jesus said in Matthew 24, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Is that what you pray as you go into this week? Lord, you know what I will face this week. Help me to be a faithful witness. Help me Whatever happens, to stand firm. That's God's will for your life. The church will be devastated. And then finally, just to see that the church is triumphant and will be triumphant. Really, it's the triumph of the Lamb, but the church is welcomed into that, shares in that. This period when it looks as if the church has gone under, is only for a time, short time, three and a half days. It's a symbolic number, as I said, just to speak of that short period. And God revives his church again, verse 11. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. And terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. 
God revives his people. We, we sometimes sing that, don't we? Breathe on me, breath of God, fill me with life in you. God does this. Is, is this the, the, the believers that have been driven underground and they now emerge, as it were? And the, the enemies look on in terror as God's people are taken to Christ's side and there's a judgment and, and, and even those who are strangers to the Lord give glory to God. This doesn't seem to come from transformed hearts. It's a begrudging acknowledgement that, that, that God is God. The end, you see, has come. Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's what's happening. And then we, we find that the seventh trumpet sounds. These things are not all to be taken in chronological order. They're, they're pictures one of the other. They overlap and so on. And the seventh trumpet sounds. You remember when the seventh seal was, was opened, there was the silence of anticipation. Now there's a volume of praise. And first it's the angels, this wonderful verse. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. God has done it. This, this kingdom that was set up against the Lord is now firmly and supremely under God's rule and reign. No question. And the church responds. That's the 24 elders. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because normally you see the one who is and was and is to come is the way that Revelation describes the Lord. But, but he's here now, so we don't need to say that. The one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. You see, this all sets the scene for the last judgment. The, the, the last time we, we got up and there was silence, this time we've gone a little bit further. There's more to tell us about the last judgment. We'll see that eventually. But, but now it's sort of setting the scene. And you see, God is here. The Ark of the Covenant, seen in the very last verses we've been seeing in Samuel, that, that, that it's the symbolic presence of the Lord. And here it is in John's vision. God is here. He's reigning. His supremacy is now unquestioned. What does that mean? What does it mean to stand before the God whose supremacy is unquestioned and unquestionable? Well, it sort of depends. For the church... It's marvelous. You see, there's, there's humble worship. We're on our faces. And, and there's reward, amazingly, small and great. But, but the dominant note, isn't it, just at the beginning, is that we're full of thanks. What God has done just fills us with gratitude. Lord, Thank you. The presence of God is worship-inspiring, gratitude-generating, reward-giving. It's great. The hallelujah chorus is great. I would love to be sort of close to handle whenever he sees this. I want to hear what he's going to say. 
I think he'll say, oh, didn't even get close to it. What does it mean to stand before God? For the church, it's marvelous. But for others, for those who destroyed the earth, verse 18, it's the time for their destruction. That's why the the, the, the ark, the sight of the ark is accompanied by earthquakes and thunder. Those are pictures of judgment, you see, because to stand before the Lord as one clothed in the righteousness of Christ as his child is fantastic. We're full of thanks and praise. We're on our faces in worship. But to stand before this God without Christ as his enemy? Oh, that's just dreadful. So, so the church, you see, will be triumphant. I don't know, is there, are there any of us here tonight? And we, we, even as we hear that, we just realize, do you know, I, I, am, I am without Christ. This is the time to flee to him. How, how merciful of him to allow you to get to this stage in your life to again hear the call to turn to him. Why, why don't you? So the church, it's protected and pressured. It will be for a time devastated. It will be forever triumphant when it hears the angels shout. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, help us to think more about the church. We are so grateful that by your grace, you have opened our eyes and allowed us to see our need of the Lord Jesus. You've given us grace to trust him. And in trusting him, we have come to you, the one who brings us into your people, your family, this church that will worship you forever. Lord, will you help us to treasure every moment that we have to serve you, to be strong witnesses to you and to your truth, even amongst a world that has no time for the church. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen.